Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philacrosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to have you back on the Philacrosophy podcast. And today's guest is Stuart Armstrong from The Talent Equation. Stuart is a podcaster, a vlogger, a speaker, a coach developer, an ecological explorer, and calls himself a sense maker, a wayfinder, and a drill ditcher. I have followed Stuart and The Talent Equation on Twitter listen to his podcasts, and honestly have had, have been impacted hugely by Stuart, by his guests, his content, and the way he views the world of coaching and player and youth sports development, athlete development. Um, so Stuart and I agreed to do a podcast that was more of a conversation. So here's my intro into my conversation with Stuart Armstrong. I hope you enjoy it. Well, um, interesting experiment in podcasting today because um, I'm joined by Jamie Munro. Um, and uh, Jamie uh, is also a fellow podcaster. So we've decided to come together and do a little bit of a, I guess, a simulcast, we could maybe describe it, whereby we're recording at the same time, but we're going to be publishing in our respective podcasts. So we're probably going to have a little bit of a slightly different format where we're both talking to each other about each other and, and nobody is 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 in the kind of question hot sheet hot seat but we are just going to have a general conversation about uh about uh all things coaching and player development and all those sorts of things and i'm super excited to welcome jamie to the show because he's the first lacrosse coach that i've actually had on the show and i'm a huge fan of the sport and um deeply regretful that I was never given an opportunity to play it as a young person because I'm 
absolutely I love stick based sports because obviously I'm involved with field hockey and a range of other striking based sports and uh, and lacrosse is one that I know I would have loved I'm not sure how good I would have been at it but I know I would have loved it so anyway Jamie I'm really excited to have this conversation and thanks for joining me yeah likewise Stuart I really appreciate it um, I've been a big fan of uh, of your work um, of the guests you've had on um, one of my favorite ones was Ted Creighton um, that was the first podcast I listened to you. So I interviewed him on my podcast also, and he's like a free play guru, uh, owns a soccer club called Joy of the People that's all free play based. And my, man, I, I learned so much from that podcast. I reached out to him immediately and had to talk to him. <laughs> oh, well, I liked, uh, if nothing else, I love the fact that uh, the podcast is connecting people because there are one of the things that always fascinates me about being a podcaster and having this opportunity to talk to so many different people is how endlessly fascinating they are and also how how many people are out there doing really exciting and cool things sometimes you know against the grain sometimes you know slightly different cultural uh, framework and this that and the other but then if that inspires somebody else and then that connects and then they can create, create a bit of a community and all that sort of stuff then it's it's more to the better. So that's great to hear. Yep. Yep. Very cool. So we've had a pretty um, sort of similar, uh, we've, we've, we've ended up in a sort of a similar position in our, in our lives where we've been studying coaching and best practices. And probably uh, in my case, I kind of came full circle from free play all the way through coaching back to free play. And since we got this little simulcast, maybe uh, you can, share a little bit about how you got to where you got to, and then maybe I'll do the same. Sure. Um, yeah, de definitely a very similar journey. I, I guess I was fortunate to grow up in a number of different parts of the world. My father was a, um, a, a marine, a nautical pilot, a marine pilot. Um, and he uh, got contracts in several parts of the world. So there was a period of time when I was about five or six, where I grew up in West Africa. And then there was a period of time when I was eight through 11, um, where I was growing up in uh, a place called Papua New Guinea, out, um, which is an island just north of Australia. If you spin the, the globe round, you'll, you'll spot it. You may never seen it before. And mm -hmm. those, those experiences, I guess, exposed me to quite a lot of different sports in particular uh, my time in um in west africa um was um very influenced by a lot of i guess us and canadian sports because um you know it was we it was actually as a french colony there was quite a lot of french canadians there but there was also a lot of us contractors there as part of the expat community so you know we were playing things like softball and stickball and all these sorts of different games and um and then when I went to New Guinea, similarly, but we also then picked up some of the Australian stuff. And obviously the influence is there, particularly with the indigenous populations around the way they approach play, the approach play and they approach sport. You know, I remember distinctly us being, uh, we were like the international school. So we had a combination of different, different nationalities. Um, and we were sort of all thrown together to play sport and we play against kids in the local villages who played mostly barefoot on really quite hard ground and their ability, their athleticism, the speed, the control, um, the ferocity with which they could propel the ball um, was just, I was in goal. So like, you know, wow, I just used to watch it go in and we'd lose 21 nil. But anyway, it was an interesting time. And um, 
So I've always grown up, I suppose, with this kind of real mixture of almost like naturalized involvement in sport and physical activities, really contrasted with some of my own experiences with formal coaching, which being very structured and organized. And you're watching these others who are sort of playing with much more free expression and it's quite interesting. And then when I came, when I came back to the UK and we were involved, I got involved in sort of more formal sport, I suppose, through schooling and these sorts of things. One of the things that I know I always did was always had a huge curiosity around the creation of pickup games, like a lot of people. And so we would always be playing pickup games with my brother and my friends, and we'd design all sorts of really imaginative, creative ways of making these games kind of more fun, making them harder, making them more challenging. Um, and, you know, and also developing, you know, competitive formats and leagues and all sorts of stuff. We'd have games played over days and things like that. So, and I then contrast that with then the formal sport experience that, you know, most children are sort of getting now and I've even been the provider of. And it seems to be robbed of joy to use uh, Ted's, you know, kind of perspective. And that kind of that expression and freedom and the opportunity to explore and create and all those sorts of things seems to be gone. So I found myself through my formal coach education and then through the early parts of my coaching career, you know, almost like saying that that whole kind of free expression concert construct, you know, was almost a thing of the past because I was serious now and I was going to go down a route. And so everything had to be structured and ordered and this, that, and the other. And then I just realized, I guess, over a number of periods, over a number of years, coaching at various different levels, quite high levels and everything else, that it was a pretty joyless experience for me, kind of pretty like robotic and almost felt a bit dehumanized and, I wasn't getting a lot out of it. I was becoming really quite demotivated and frustrated. And I was taking that out on the athletes sometimes. And, you know, it really wasn't that positive an experience all around. So I guess I am um, in the search for answers or in the search for new ideas. I was actually very fortunate through both what I do in day to day, because I've worked in sport as well as have it as a, you know, kind of what I do as a pastime in, um, you know, when I was exposed through some of the roles that I had to, some very knowledgeable individuals who understood a lot about, you know, skill acquisition and understood about coaching and different coaching paradigms and a lot of the research behind that. And they exposed me to this wonderful world of the constraints led approach and the environment and the ecological approach and a range of other different um, um, models, none of which I necessarily knew anything about at that time. And then I discovered there was a body of research that kind of genuinely looked at uh, human development through this what you might call this more ecological lens this more naturalistic lens and then discovered actually that all that stuff that I'd cast off all that stuff that, that the kind of free play and the sort of self-directed stuff was actually a really powerful learning paradigm for young people and I realized then from my from the perspective of my coaching practice that there's a whole body of research that supported that as a notion as a way of human beings learning and developing and so through that whole journey, I guess I, um, I've then come to realize how dominant the alternative has, is within the world of coaching, how most formal coach education focuses primarily on the acquisition of technique and then the, trans the translation of technique into context, you know, a linear progression of performance, whereas the ecological approach is much, much more about let's provide environments and learning and the learning context, and then let's see what emerges as a means by which to navigate through those learning spaces. And that's a non-linear approach, if you like, working almost the other way around. And I've been on a journey of exploration with that for the last, I guess, five, maybe to eight years. And it's been transformative in certainly my experience. And I hope it's been transformative in the experience of the athletes I'm involved with.
Amazing. The way I, I just love the way that you describe that um, the linear versus nonlinear. And what's the definition of ecological approach and constraints led approach? So um, the ecological approach almost takes the idea that um, human beings over centuries have um, adapted to their environments for that for that matter it's not just human beings any organism um has adapted to their environments as a means by which to either survive or progress or progress or develop or whatever it might be so skill um or ability if you like is defined very much by the action requirements in a certain environment and so the ecological approach essentially posits that if we can manipulate the environment in such a way, then that will bring about an adaptation from the organism, in this case, a human being or a group of human beings. And so by making changes in the environment, um, we can do that. And the constraints-led approach is a one of the methods that's sort of quite closely aligned to the ecological approach, because what you do is you manipulate constraints as a means by which to change the environment. And, and I'm, I'm going to be a bit oversimplified, but broadly speaking, constraints can be categorized in um, four groupings. Um, you can manipulate space. You can, and that's like both, you know, kind of horizontal, vertical space, um, three dimensional space, if you like. Um, you can manipulate the task either by changing rules or changing the objective of the activity or whatever it might be. You can manipulate um, the equipment that's used, bigger balls, smaller balls, different types of uh, implements, all those sorts of things. Or you can manipulate the people, numbers of people, what they can do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of constraints within the constraints, but broadly speaking, they are the broadly the four, four manipulations. And if you manipulate them um, carefully and mindfully, what you can then do is... Uh, enable individuals to then explore different movement possibilities within that within that space, that learning space, if you like. And those movement possibilities, um, because they're a response to um, the task, or sorry, not the task, but the the kind of the situation that they're they're in, um, become quite powerful because they're a, um, they're very individualized. They take into a consideration, uh, you know, who that individ the individual um, and what they're capable of at that time and. And then also, it's very much theirs. They very much own it because that's their solution as opposed to sort of a, a more traditional approach, which would have been about the prescription of solutions. And, you know, this is the way to do this. We know this because this is the way we play this game. And then asking people to then to apply them into the context which we call the game. Um, and what we see is that sometimes that transfer doesn't necessarily take, take place. And we also see that sometimes the solutions that we provide are not necessarily functional for those individuals. So, sorry, that should have been a much shorter explanation. But anyway, I loved it. Broadly, <laughs> I got a fifth constraint for you: time. Go on. Time, of course. Yes, yes. So, shot clocks can be a really good way of of making things happen. There's probably yeah. other ways to do it, but um, but I love like the shot clock they've introduced in lacrosse, or the shot clock you have in basketball, and it just forces you know, scenarios to occur. Um, how, how, so what's the difference between constraints and ecological? It sounds like they're, they're really not different. There might be more too ecological uh, as far as what the constraints are completely fit into that model, correct? 
Yeah, so the ecological, I guess, ecological dynamics is, if you like, the overarching theories. It's it's a combination of ecological psychology and mm. dynamical systems theory, which is basically essentially saying, you know, these two, you know, you, the dynamics of the environment form a means by which human adaptation can take place. So that's, if you like, the overarching theory. Yeah, gotcha. the, the constraints-led approach is one of the approaches that's sort of locked within that, amongst others. One of the things that I've, I've believed as a coach and a player, and I tried to teach endlessly because it is so important and is actually easy to present and explain and you can rep it out all day long, but it's something that people, the best players do all the time and everybody that's aspiring and particularly those that are in, in structure don't do enough. And that's deception. Yeah. Deception is uh, and I bring it up because when I think of this, the, the ecological approach, and I think about the, you know, I, I started thinking about deception in in uh, Darwinian terms. Yes, exactly. I mean, deception is is life or death. Yeah. Um, and it is learned and evolved over time, where not only the prey but the predators need to utilize deception in order to live, in order to survive, um, and the best players in when they're playing um, in a more of an ecological environment where they're just playing, they figure that out. Mm. They will figure out on their own how to not look where they're going. As simple as that, their postures, one posture can back somebody off. Another posture can bring them to you. As Ted Creighton talks about it, it's a, it's a nonverbal communication with your opponent. Um, that is part of his theory on fluency, which I heard, I think, on your podcast with him. But, um, but it's funny because it's, I've known it, it's been so important. I do these things as a player, and I would try to teach them as a coach over time. And what really got me back to free play was my dissatisfaction in the translation from what people and players could do versus what they did do. And I would say the the deception was at the top of the list of stuff that, that people just weren't doing when they were getting into games. And no matter how much we repped it out and practiced it, no matter how good they were at it, it had nothing to do with their ability to execute that skill. And so I just thought I'd bring it up as kind of an interesting uh, topic. It's definitely something that I'd love to circle back to, but I'd be remiss on this simulcast if I didn't ask you about your journey and your story. Yeah, thanks. Well, I grew up, um, I grew up in the 70s and 80s as a kid. I graduated from high school in 1985. Um, I was a soccer player. I, I was pretty much played every sport, but there just wasn't that much organized sports. And what I found, what I discovered when I moved to Providence, Rhode Island, was I was walking distance from Brown University. And I went over there with my cleats and my ball one day and I saw a game going on. And I was about 11 or 12 and these were all grown men. So, but they needed a player. And they're like, hey, you want to play? And I was like, who, me? And, and I jumped in and from that point on, I went and played pickup soccer with these guys every day in the summer and then on weekends, not knowing that it was the most significant athletic, you know, experience uh, of my life. And um, lacrosse for me was uh, was March, April, and May. There was very little lacrosse going on outside of those times, and most of the lacrosse was kind of with our friends messing around, and that was how I played sports. I went to Brown University 
played lacrosse there, um, coached at Yale for eight years from 91 to 98 as an assistant coach, was the head coach at Denver University, which is another Division One program from oh, uh, 98 till 09, went to a couple NCAA tournaments there and then founded a, a, a program called 3D Lacrosse, which was a, a youth sports organization that had camps and clinics and travel teams and tournaments. And all the way, I was on this journey of studying the game and, and trying to become the best coach that I could be, and then trying to be trying to scale that knowledge across my teams. And in the case of the business, we really cared about trying to make the best possible experience for our kids and really teach them the game and really try to you know do it the way I would have done it with a college lacrosse program and be be consistent with our terminologies and try to get consistency within our coaching. Um. And then in, in 2017, I sold, I sold my shares of 3D lacrosse. I stepped down as, the, as, the, as a high school coach for my, for, of my son. Uh, he had graduated and I was kind of transitioning on to go spend more time with my youngest, my daughter. And it was at that time that I was looking through the world with a different lens. And that's where I really became just not satisfied with the model, even though I, I was proud of the work we did. And we, we, we really taught a lot and we were good and we were probably you know, I don't want to like rip on all the efforts, but I just wasn't satisfied. So I just started thinking I, I, I was, I had three year, you know, I had time to really think about what I wanted to do. And I just decided to start doing free play with athletes, my daughter first, and then her friends and then kids that I was working with. And we combined this with film, which has been really interesting. So I, I've always been into watching film because I think that you learn stuff from film that you can't, you can't see what happened in real time, but if you compress pause and rewind, you can see. And I started filming a lot of free play um, and watching over the course of time what was happening and the skills that people were using and that, that deception that I was referring to. Um, and so um, that's where I am now. I, I uh, have um, I work with athletes remotely on Zoom calls. I was doing Zoom calls in 2017 before anyone really knew what Zoom was. And we were primarily just watching video of free play where we could see what happened and sort of see how people were responding to what you were doing. Like, hey, do you notice, you know, when you look here, their stick goes up there and it just begins to give them this idea of what's actually happening around them. Um, I also create a ton of co coaching content. Um, and as my philosophies have changed, so too has all of that content going from a very prescriptive, let's do it like this to honestly, um, a lot less, a lot less of that. Um, and so that's where I am now. And so that's why I found the talent equation and started listening to your stuff and, and really just kind of scouring the planet for interesting ideas and, and information that I could use. <laughs> Um, and, it, and it, it's fascinating because the the notion of free play, interestingly, I think, has, I don't know what you think about this, but sadly, I think it feels to me that the concept of, of free play or even just play, even deliberate play, let's say, the word play has almost become a little bit of a dirty word in some Yep. New sport programming. I think it's almost as if like it's frivolous. It's got got it's, it's valueless, and actually yes. we need to be doing training and we need to be doing serious things in order to obtain any value out of these things. And therefore, both the pro provider, i.e., coach, or the yep. club, and the 
consumer, if you like, often it's the parent and the, the yep. child is just the sort of passive recipient, are gravitating to things that they are closer to, feel that to me anyway, closer to work or closer to school. Yep. And again, you know, this then means that we've lost this sort of joy. And yet the misunderstanding in my view is that free play is where the genuine learning comes from, particularly if part of what you're trying to provide is or trying to get to is, you know, pl players who have the ability to deceive, as you mentioned, or players who have the ability to be adaptable and creative when faced with novel problems. And I don't know if, I don't know, I just feel like it, something's missing. I don't know. You're right. People, because people, um, we're, we're all, we've all been trained, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, you know, is what everyone bought into. It made so much sense. And, and we all like to think of ourselves as hard workers and work ethic has been a virtue that, you know, a lot of people subscribe to. And it makes it, it when, when you're working hard at something, it feels good and it feels like you're accomplishing stuff. And when you go out, bang, when you go out and bang out a bunch of reps, you know, of a particular skill, it can make you feel really good about what you're doing. And it makes more sense to parents that they're actually getting better at this, but I'll say, but what are they getting better at? And they'll say, well, I mean, I'm watching them get better at in this very practice lesson. And I'm like, you at, 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 at going one-on-one -on -one against cones or shooting on empty nets, like, what are they getting better at? And, you know, I've kind of come to this um, way of thinking about the, the key to the game is your ability to read and influence plays and, um, and um, influencing a play. It would be through communication or through deception. Any of your actions can influence, but, but a lot of it, you can kind of influence the other team with your deception and you can influence your own teammates with your communication and be able to work together in, in teamwork. And, and that's kind of the essence of this fluency concept that Ted Creighton always talks about. And it's the hardest thing to learn. And if you can do that, it's why like great players can still be great past their prime. They can't execute things physically the way they once could, but they can read and influence plays so well that they can make everything so they can lift. It's like a rising tide that lifts all ships and allows them to have control over their own situation a lot of the time. And um, most people can't relate to what that even means. They don't understand it. Um, they can see, you can you can present it. I can show you what it looks like when I back somebody off with a posture or bring them to me with another posture. Um, but they think they'd rather rep it out and, and they feel like the, the actual execution of the skill is, is the most important thing when, when honestly, who's to say what skill is more important than another. That's why this word fundamentals to me is completely uh, miss. People are misguided uh, with that idea that there is a, particular skill that is fundamental. I don't believe so. I think it's concepts that are fundamental. You must possess the ball and then you got to figure out how to do that. Right. Um, and so, you know, as opposed to a particular, you know, way to kick a ball or, you know, receive a ball. That's perfect because I think the idea of concepts or principles or whatever else I think is so foundational. And actually from that, it, they, they form the basis of the creation of environments that 
ask questions of um, of the players and ask them about ways in which they might individually and collective, collectively solve some of those. So I feel like one of the problems with uh, so much emphasis placed on individual technique and then the repetition of indiv individual technique. And by the way, um, while we're just talking about Gladwell for a second, um, and I know uh, his, uh, his book has received uh, quite a lot of criticism of late, which is on some levels is a little bit deserved because he described the 10,000 hours research as a 10,000 hours rule and it was never never designed as such and mm -hmm. uh Anders Ericsson I know uh who fairly recently passed away um laments the fact that sometimes uh authors and journalists were translating the research and sometimes not necessarily representing it as well as they could however mm -hmm. the issue with the 10,000 hours is less about the fact that um so the problem is is everyone's fixated on the number and mm -hmm. um but what they lost the sight of, I think, which is, I think, an important message was that practice quality is as important as practice quantity, if not, if not more important, because deliberate practice defined by him, I'm not sure I necessarily ascribe to all of it, but yeah. deliberate practice is mindful. It, it requires uh, attending to detail and it usually requires, uh, in his case, he was talking about, say, an instructor or a teacher, because some of his research was done in some of his research and expertise was done in music. So if let's say, you know, how many now I don't necessarily think it always has to have a coach there um, because those domains are slightly different to ours because ours are dynamic and ever changing, whereas things like music are a little bit more about uh, repeatable aspects. So it's mm -hmm. like it is slightly different. But anyway, what you say. So if you want something to be deliberate, you want deliberate practice in 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 our sports, um, then what you want for it to be deliberate is for it to be dynamic as, as dynamic as it can be in order to uh, in order for the athlete to engage effectively not and without too much you know without overload and um, if we do want to make it dynamic then um, designing the environment but based on the concepts is the critical thing because yep. if if we spend a lot of time focused on technique or movement patterns and the and somehow the development of movement patterns that then we're going to apply, then what you then do is you take the emphasis and the um, focus of the athlete away from the relevant information in the environment that defines how they move. So not just a question of what they do, but also how they do it. Yeah. Um, and so if, you're, if your learning space is devoid of, they describe it as an impoverished uh, uh, learning space because it's not it's not doesn't have the richness of the information that's presented so if you put all you've ever done is to have these sort of impoverished learning spaces then to then ask young people to be able to go and do that so you're not practicing deliberately because it's mindless it's not about attending right. to relevant information and the relevant information in a team game is my opponent's the, you know the, the the particular thing we're trying to do at the time is it get the ball back or is it move it move it towards their goal so that we've got a better chance of scoring? What are my opponents doing to try and stop me doing that? What are my teammates doing in relation to me? And how are we coordinating each other, coordinating ourselves relative to their movements? And what do I need to do as an individual to either advance our or advance our object towards the goal or prevent them from advancing towards us? Right. like the fundamental concepts and from that and there's other dimensions that you can create but you can create really nice exploratory learning spaces 
based principally on those contracts that feel very free and exploratory and have a lot of opportunity for action within them. They're not defined. It's not so it's not predefined action. It's more about action possibility and, ma and maintaining a landscape of action possibility. That I, that's where I find the most joy because when athletes come yeah. up with new, new solutions, it's just transformative, you know, for them and me. So I always say to people like, can you remember doing something in your life athletically that you've never done before? <laughs> and it's, it's genius, but it happens a lot and it happens more in free play spaces than anything else. And it's happened to all of us throughout our lives where we just did something. And they're like, I don't even know where that came from, but that's that, 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 that will come to you. One of the things I wanted to mention though, um, on the topic of, of this 10,000 hour rule of deliberate practice that I think um, a lot of people have this whole concept of repping things out and, 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 and they have it backwards because I feel like if you take a pro player or a very high level player, they can actually go out by themselves and deliberately practice something and sharpen that skill Yeah, because they know what they're doing. Yeah. They know how, what it means to, to lean one way, lean the other and go back to the original direction, or they know what it means to deceive a goalie with their, with the way their body is facing and posturing and all of that. They understand how to do these things. And therefore they can mindfully deliberately yeah. practice things. Absolutely. The problem is when you try to teach this way, the kids haven't done this enough to actually be able to practice anything that's even relevant to what they're going to do. They're, 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 they're dodging and dribbling past a cone, which is not going to be give them the, anything similar to what a human will be like. Yeah. Um, whereas that pro player can do that. And it's the same in lacrosse with shooting. I mean, these kids, they go out and they shoot, 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 shoot. And it's great. They're improving on their accuracy and, you know, they're going to shoot at their velocity and stuff like that. But what they're not doing is practicing something that would deceive a goalie, um, leaning one way and throwing it the other. And all of these little details are what make players great. And so I kind of feel like, you know, if you just want to work on your game and, and uh, you know, you want to go out and do stuff by yourself, have at it. I think it's great. I don't want to get in the way of people doing that. I, I want people to understand that there's major diminishing returns with that but that even pros that are doing this are really doing it just to sharpen their skills. And they also really do have an idea of what they're working on. And I think that's something that most coaches need to understand too. I, I do agree. And, and interestingly on that subject, um, you're absolutely right. And I think the, the, uh, elite, the elite or the more proficient you are, the more value you can get from doing that kind of, repetitive activity but there is this concept within sort of you know the kind of non-linear uh, yeah. approach which is this idea of repetition without repetition yeah. um and and so what you're trying to create even in a isolated situation is design an environment that's got enough variability within it that actually you're never getting quite the same thing twice there's always something that you've got to adjust to mm -hmm. and elite athletes sort of know that so that so while yeah. it looks like they're sort of mindlessly repping they're not they're actually developing and refining mm -hmm. movements and like you say they've got in their minds the context in which that's likely to be helpful to right. them so, so it's the picture's useful to them but but even with kids who maybe don't have that level of experience um uh it's not off the table by the way to have 
uh, you know, kind of an, an individualized, isolated, you know, ball against the wall type scenario. And it's not, it's not that it's completely value less. There's a bit of a misunderstanding about that. So we talk about, you know, one V zero, you know, going against somebody. So what I would always say is that it, there's real value to that, but ideally what you want is you want someone else involved. So you want someone to react to or someone to be able to utilize as the, but if you haven't got that, so like if you were at home and you know, you haven't got someone else to play with, then absolutely go out and play against the wall or play against whatever obstacles or anything you can do. Um, but, but you know, um, and, and create Cause that's way better than not. That's way better than sitting at home and watching TV or playing video games or whatever it is, go out and sure. do all of that stuff. But just my, but my problem often, and this is one of the things that I'm trying to challenge coaches with all the time is when you have a group together for a training activity, why would you spend time forcing them to do individualized stuff? Exactly. (laughs) That's, that's the point really. If never do it, if you don't have, you know, if if you're alone, then great. But if you're not, why would you ever do that? Because it's an opportunity cost. That's massive. You'll never get the chance to figure something out new again that you will get in that scenario. Uh, I totally agree with you. Couldn't agree more. And now the only time, just, just as a, just as actually as a slight aside, actually just, but so that the only time, for example, you will see me in a session doing uh, like one V zero would be in what I would describe as a transition moment. So for example, I'm moving from one activity to the next and I need to get it shit i've got small pitch space so i can't always have a natural transition that just flows sometimes i have to cut have a little pause yeah allow the kids to get a drink while i'm setting up the next activity oh. or, or, or but um in that space there's times when i'll say right you've just been doing a 1v1 activity in this particular environment and i bet you've discovered something in that environment now while we're waiting for the next thing to set up I want you to just spend a little bit of time playing around with that on your own without somebody coming to get the ball off you just to sort of see if you can maybe find a way to refine it because in a minute we're going to do the next game and we're going to be asking you some questions about some of the things that you've discovered. The game is going to be asking you the questions. So just spend the time now to explore it. And that's the only time you'll see that 1v0 in a session and it lasts not very long at all. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm similar. Like uh, the only time I would do something that would be unopposed would be in the very beginning, uh, more as a warm up, you know, a little bit of a warm up with some passing and catching on the run. And then we're sort of right into what we're doing. I got a cool story for you. So um, I coached my daughter. She just graduated from high school this past year. And I got to coach her high school team starting when she was in grade 10. But all along, we had this free play going on in front of my house. And all the girls, they kept on coming over. And of course we got hit um, in 2020 with COVID right in, the, right in the beginning of our season. So we, we were in lockdown and we did not get a chance to have that season. That, that particular year, there was this girl that came out. She had been a soccer and basketball player. She was a ter- terrific athlete. And she came out for lacrosse for her very first time ever. Of course, we missed that season. Um, we were there for 10 days, played one game and she was a starter. And she was like, man, this girl is going to be a, a definite division one prospect, even though she's really hardly played the game throughout the, you know, once the few months of quarantine lockdown was over, kids started coming over to the house again. And we probably played the cross in front of my house. I don't know, two or three times a week for, you know, July, August, September, October, November, December. 
And this girl, you know, long story short, she ends up getting a scholarship offer to Arizona State University in January, late January of 2021. She had only started playing the game in like February, March to 2020. And at one point in the fall, she was at our house and I was like, I was like, hey, Barrett, have you ever noticed that I've actually never taught you anything? <laughs> and she kind of looked at me a little puzzled by the question, not knowing how to answer it. Um, and she's like, yeah, now that you mention it, why? And I was like, because I just want you to play. And she was like, not knowing she was like my ultimate free play experiment. I mean, <laughs> this girl's so athletic. I could have taught her a million things. I like literally the only thing is like when she would be on my team, I'd be like, move the ball, move the ball. So where my coaching comes into play is more just because I'm playing. And I'm actually trying to win and um, maybe I'll get you to pass when somebody else wouldn't. But but it was really, really cool and really interesting. Um, now, she had signed up for a club program and she'd gotten some instruction along the way. But from me, her main coach, I literally didn't teach her one technique, not one thing um, for months and months and months and months. And um, it was it was brilliant. And she is at Arizona state university right now and doing great. And she's literally only played one season of lacrosse in her life and did it through free play. And, and, and got a scholarship to Arizona yeah. from there. Yep. Wow. Unreal, huh? That is really amazing. And actually, she, you know what? She couldn't be in a better place, Arizona state university, because uh, Rob Gray, the uh, founder of the perception action yeah. podcast is there. That's right. I've listened to his stuff from, I've, I've listened to it on your thing. And then also the head coach there is this guy named Tim McCormick. You should get him on your show. This guy is an incredible coach and is really doing amazing things with women's lacrosse. Um, and he's completely into the free play. That's why he, you know, one of the reasons why he was all over her is he needs great athletes there in the PAC 12, but he also has a complete free play model. Everything that he does is, is about reading and reacting um, he, he just says, I want practice is going to be your best two hours of the day, every single day. And he's really creating this amazing culture. It's very cool. I, I but I think interestingly enough, there's quite a bit of research, you know, in, in the ecological space now about this concept of donor sports. And, and I do wonder, given that example that you've just used there, um, about the idea of, you know, having played two other team sports considerably, whether then transferability then to another game that is an invasion game in essence and therefore the concepts and principles are the same and then the the and then the, the, the some people assume that you have to it takes you longer to develop the technical capabilities but actually i would say not necessarily depending on the nature of the donor sports that you played yeah i totally agree with that um you know i grew up i, I sort of talked about my the soccer the pickup soccer but when i was coaching in, in college lacrosse I, I didn't grow up much of a basketball player started to play a little bit in college because it was just a very close sport to lacrosse and it's fun. And then in every college athletic department in the U S there's this phenomenon called lunchtime hoops <laughs> and everybody plays basketball and you got all the coaches from the other sport programs playing basketball. And it, it like completely took my understanding of sports and lacrosse and hesitations and two man games and pick and roll in all of these things uh, to a completely another level. And I think that honestly, soccer and basketball 
are two of the best possible sports you could have uh, for the sport of lacrosse. Hockey's great too. Mm. Um, but, but I want to make one comment. Um, I think a lot of people confuse with donor sports. As, I, I, I totally get that these sports, you know, I just made the point are, are going to help your lacrosse, let's say, but I feel like what people confuse that with, I think it has more to do with being able to play pickup in those other sports. In other words, in basketball, it's a, it's a pickup sport. You, you basically, if you have, you know, if you have three or if you have two, two people, you play one-on-one. If you have three people, you play one-on-one-on-one 21. If you have four people, you play two-on-two. Um, that's, you know, if you're alone, you shoot and you put your time into it. Soccer is kind of that way too. The problem with these sports is that everybody has structured everything. So now kids don't do that stuff on their own. But I would say in basketball, they do more yeah. in soccer. They do less. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I feel like the big carryover has more to do with the nature of sports that you play more pickup in where you actually learn how to read and influence plays as opposed to always being in structure because I've seen also kids that have played a lot of soccer and have zero ability to read and influence because they were just standing in lines doing what they were told to do or not doing what they're told not to do all the time. And so I, I think it's kind of an interesting nuance, but I think it's real. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and also one of the things I should also say, and I don't think, uh, I don't necessarily like the idea that I'm doing these sports because they're going to help this one, which is my main sport. Cause that's just kind of a route to um, early specialization. <laughs> I think the idea is, is that we're going to do lots of different sports and all of those different sports are going to contribute in some way, some more than others. Um, and then at some stage later in life, we will determine which are the ones we might decide we want to pursue with more vigor. Um and that's later, that way, way later than most people think. What's and your that, definition of later in life? Um, well, I, I think it's very individual and I think it's linked to maturation. Um, and when I say maturation, I'm talking about kind of emotional, mental, psychological, as well as physic, physical maturation. So uh, to use an example, I suppose, my N equals one experiment, which is my son. I've actually got N equals two because I've got a daughter as well, but my a son who's further advanced in age. I wanted as all as much as possible was to, to give him as op- as many opportunities to do as many activities as he really wanted to do as it was humanly possible. Um, and at some stage he would decide which of those he wanted to do more of. And then at some stage, then we would help, I would then help him with making the decisions about what that would mean for him in terms of training and the dedication that, you know, if he decided he wanted to sort of pursue and see how far his potential would take him. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that when you're in a governing body because you have to tend to group people by ages and stages and all these sorts of things, and you end up with these sort of models. But in when I was in rugby, for example, we actively, we did a massive talent consensus piece of work, and we actively raised the point at which a individual child, in this case a boy in the main, would enter the talent pathway, if you like. They'd begin the sort of more formalized I say more formalized. So they'd start to intensify their training loads, which would mean that they would need to exclude other sports because the training loads were such that it wouldn't allow them to do other sports. So they'd have to begin to exclude other sports. We waited later. So we made it for 14. Um, 
which is a lot later than would traditionally be the case, you know, because many schools in particular and many other organizations were starting to sort of do high volume training much, much earlier than that. Yeah. Um, and and so I would say, again, it's dependent on the activity and it's dependent on the individual as to when that point is. But as a general rule, post-maturation would be my recommendation. So a ballpark on number 14, 15? Yeah. Again, you know, some kids like some kids different, but go up ball. earlier. Through yeah. pandemic, my son went from being, you know, essentially a 12-year-old boy to probably, I mean, you know, he had the... He was 13, but he he had the stature of a 12 year old or a 12 and a half year old boy. And he's now grown with such speed that, you know, he's now my height. It's taken us completely by surprise. And mm. uh, and, you know, he's gone through full maturation in a relatively short period of time. And he's probably now got the physicality because obviously some of the uh, musculature comes with it. He's now got the physicality of about uh, probably a 14 and a half year old, even though he's still in the body of a th- still, still chronologically 13. Um, and he's coming to terms with that. You know, and so there's lots of challenges there with volume, training volume around injury, cap- you know, injury possibilities and o- overuse injuries and all those sorts of things. So we have to be very mindful now of you know, what his training load is and how much he's going to focus. Plus, of course, the more pathways you get involved with, the more demands are on you and the less you can do with other things. You don't have enough rest and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's, a, it's not interesting. It's a complex thing often, but um, it is. yeah. And it's so hard too, because... Here, here's what I've kind of come to believe, sadly. You know, everybody, I think a lot of people would like their kids to be multi-sport athletes. Um, and, and then they plug into the youth sports machine for their first time and, you know, at age five or something like this. And then the kid really, they really like it. And, and, then, and then all of a sudden they're, they're in this, this structure and they feel like they need to do more. The problem with structured play um, beyond the fact that with five and six and seven and eight year olds, it's, it doesn't do, but, but, but even for, you know, if it's me, okay. And I consider myself like as, as I can run as, as good of a practice as anybody on the planet, in my opinion, now I might be pumping my own tires, but I'm, I, 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 I take a lot of, you know, uh, pains to, to make sure that there's good context and there's good reps and there's not a lot of standing around all this. But my practices cannot compare to a free play game in terms of what they're going to learn and how much better they're going to get. It, without question, it's going to be less efficient. And so the problem with people with youth sports is the only way they can get good enough to feel good about their progress is to plug in more and more and more at, at like a 10% efficiency practice. Whereas if they literally just went out and played soccer with six kids uh, for an hour on this day and then played street hockey uh, you know for an hour with four kids an hour on this day they could do three hours a week of three different sports and be better at all three of those sports than they ever could by plugging into the youth sports machine with all of the drills and skills and lines and stuff that they're being taught and explained to and so um really the, the the problem is is that structured sports is not efficient it's really important to have structured sports when you want to be on a real team that competes in a real league and play real games and try to win a real championship, then you're going to have some structure. You're going to learn team play, but it's a different, that's different than trying to develop and learn how to be a really good player. And so that's why, in my opinion, people get forced into the specialization is because the inefficiency of the structure 
forces you to do a lot more than you would otherwise have to while you're achieving less all the time. I don't know if what I said makes sense, but I, that's my theory. On I it. think that's a brilliant, I've, I've not really heard that articulated in that way. And actually it's a, it made, it's like almost like there was some penny dropping moments when you were talking, because you're absolutely right. The start at the age of six type mantra is based on the fact that they're going to be doing stuff that is so impoverished that unless you do hours and hours and hours of it, you're never going to be able to get somewhere. That's so crazy. Yeah. I agree with you. And the best, the best ones are, are all doing it at home anyways, with their dad who knows how to play. <laughs> like in all seriousness. No, you're right. Uh, but it, interestingly, uh, it's funny because I, I, I think about learning environments a lot and I think about them and I, the metaphor I use to describe many learning, uh, learning environments is to think of them as habitats. And so, you know, often most practice environments are, are very predefined and predescribed and ordered and structured, a little bit like one of those very tidy Baroque gardens that you see in some of the French chateaus. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you think of other more slightly more exploratory environments, more like a kind of the average family garden where it's still fairly defined and you can't go too far out the fence and this, that and the other. But there's still lots of different things that you can do depending on the space that you've got. Mm-hmm. Or you can think of them more as a, like a meadow where there's much more exploration possible. There is a path, but you can come off the path. You can go and explore in, in the meadow and see the, you know, the, over here there's a pond and you can play around there or over there. There's, so you've got lots more opportunity and options. Or you can see a learning environment more like a wilderness where there is no path. You're just where you are. And there's lots of opportunities. You can go in any different direction and you're going to discover things along the way. And as you discover those things, you'll discover ways of uh, navigating and getting through that space that will then help you in the future with making more progress. So you might come across a ravine, for example. How are we going to cross it? Well, what have we got around us? And the role of the coach in each of those learning environments is very different. In the Baroque Garden, it's a much more instruction type model, uh, much more a teaching model. In the, in, the, in the family garden, it's much more of a kind of leader type of approach. Uh, in the meadow, it's more of a navigator or a guide, if you like. And then in the, uh, in the um, wilderness, it's much more of what I call a sense maker. We're making sense together of what we're experiencing and we're finding solutions together. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you're going, to, you're going to inhabit all of those. You're going to have all of those learning environments in your kind of coaching repertoire. And you're going to inhabit all of those roles as a coach in your coaching type of scenario but for me when I go around working with coaches far too much time is spent in those baroque gardens um and and that's where you know now the problem you have with learning I suppose is that in a baroque garden you get fooled into thinking that it's effective because it does happen quite quickly you'll see it in the session Mm -hmm. and, and but it's actually a little bit um shallow and brittle it is yeah whereas if you're in in the wilderness it can be slow it can be painful. And this, I, I think I put free play in the wilderness, you know, because there's so much oh, opportunity. But it, can, it, it feels like you're not making much progress sometimes. It feels like you're not developing necessarily. And, you know, and sometimes it can get quite, quite um, it can feel a bit of a struggle and you can feel a little bit demotivated by that, which is why skillfully as a coach sometimes, if we can change the free play, free play environment a little bit, manipulate it a little bit then actually we can start to learn some things and then we can go back so we can slide around in this sort of continuum of learning environments but the thing about that wilderness is when you do have those epiphanies they're so deep and rich yeah. and they're so valuable that it's it's really powerful 
And actually, weirdly enough, it's not as slow as people think. It's actually the pace that you should go at. <laughs> and everyone's pace is a little different. Exactly. But what you're talking about, I, I, I refer to games as the wilderness. And why would you practice in the zoo? Yes. You know, at the end of the day, like that's what these sort of drills generally are. Um, the uh, I always think about free play. Did you see the movie um, My Octopus Teacher? Yeah, I love it. I think of that as like free play in the sense that he just went back to this one place and, and, and went there so many times that he just was, he, he, he learned how to track a, an octopus yeah. <laughs> by, by having been there so many times, he could tell when the octopus had been in this one spot on the sand. And I kind of feel like free play is very similar in the sense that when you dive that deep, you get so many details that you would otherwise never get to. Yeah. And that is, that's the value that people can't, you don't get on the uh, kicking against or throwing against a wall or playing against cones is this, the nuances of, of, of the, of the environment truly, and, and being sort of at one with it. But I want to shift gears real quick because there's another element of free play that people really struggle with that I want to, I want to talk about. And I, I really learned this concept, um, the definition of it from Ted Creighton. And it's the, it's the idea of underloading and overloading. Mm -hmm. And so what most people think is the ultimate development model would be the best coaching combined with the best competition. Then you throw in your 10,000 hours of deliberate practice and you'll, you know, you'll, you'll be world-class. Um, obviously there's a place and time for coaching. You and I are both coaches. We love coaching. Um, we'll, we'll, I'll table that for a second, but the, it's the, it's the top the level of competition part that I think people don't really understand. They'll, they'll be like, well, I'm not going to play in this pickup game. Like I'm way better than these kids. I, I, they, they're not making me better. And what I've found with the free play that I've been getting with the athletes I work with, I get boys and girls. I get different ages. By the way, the boy-girl dynamic is so much better than all boys or all girls. Uh, it's kind of, that's a whole other topic, but it's incredibly interesting. I, I think they, in the end, they kind of bring the best out of each other. Um, but, but you might say, well, how, how can... How does this work? Okay, so when I first started doing my free play that I described a few minutes back, I decided I'm going to bring in two older boys that are committed to go play Division One lacrosse. They'll join me, and I'll get my daughter Lucy and get a couple of her girlfriends. And I was like, this better competition will make them better players. That was my my thought process. I was in the same school of thinking. And what I realized was that those boys, and they said this themselves. By playing against a bunch of ninth grade girls, they were like, I've never, I've never, I, I feel like I've gained so much skill and confidence because they were physically able to just kind of toy with the girls that were three years younger and they could practice things and do, they were learning how to read and influence plays in ways that they wouldn't have if they were only going against boys or older or better players. And it's kind of like the pickup hoops deal. When I would play pickup hoops, you know, with, with sport programs, I could, I could go out there and try to be Michael Jordan. But if the basketball staff was there, forget it. I was, if I was on their team, I was literally doing nothing but giving the ball to them, setting picks, playing defense, hopefully getting a fast break basket. And so this idea of literally learning how to toy 
with, with your opponent. That's it. That you may say, well, that's just not going to work against world-class competition. And what I'm saying, yes, it actually will. Maybe not to the same exact degree, but that same posture that made that, that younger athlete back off is the same posture that will make a world-class player back off. Everybody reads the same things. And it's really your ability to learn how to show, to, 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 to read and influence plays um, with a mix clearly having some really good players in the game lifts the level of passing and teamwork in a really fun way, but to be able to have mixed levels and ages allows you to have matchups that are different and allow you to practice different things and have different ideas really just kind of come to you in real time. And I love that. And um, it's an example, I think of what I was talking about earlier around um, one of the constraints being people. So Mm being intentional about how you match groups of people up mm-hmm. has its own benefits now interestingly i can imagine as well or however it may have been a little bit dispiriting perhaps but for the ninth grade girls there might have been quite a lot that they could have could learn from that as well as how do we best coordinate ourselves to manage ourselves in a situation where we're out we're outmatched or what can we learn about our emotional state when we're outmatched? Or what do we understand about what, what is what can we find, you know, or, or what little targets can we create for ourselves if we do regain possession, knowing that there's a good chance they're probably going to get it off us again because they have just, you know, they have physical and technical capabilities that we don't have. But what little yeah. targets can we create for ourselves? And so there's lots of richness for them as well. Now there really is. It's it's really true. And I'll tell you this too, the amazing thing. I read this book called The Inner Game of Tennis. Yeah, you ever heard it. that book? Galway's amazing, yeah. Unbelievable book. And in in the whole idea of of being in the zone is really what this book is all about. Um, and what I realized immediately, I had already realized this was that free play created a level of confidence in athletes that I I had a hard time describing, but it was real. I saw it. I saw kids that were very unassertive Mm. in their club situations, get over that by simply learning how to make the play that was in front of them and just being in the moment and not worrying about anything else. It's just a part of what they were dealing with in the environment. And it might be, there's a girl going against a boy that's going to try to take the ball away. Or it might be a boy going against a, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it, or it could be a matchup that you know you can you can win, and you just don't think twice. I think the idea of making the play that's in front of you, yeah, and, is and I think something that is so interesting. It is, and also one of the things that's really valuable about, like you say, having different ages and different abilities in front of you is that they do things that are um, unexpected. Yes. Um, in fact, funnily enough, uh, I was doing. I did exactly that last night uh, in the session I was running. So I've got uh, under 12 boys and under 14 boys as part of a a group. And it was the worst night uh, weather-wise coaching. I mean, we're just starting to get a bit autumnal. It's starting to get a little bit colder. And honestly, it was biblical rain. It was, we have not coached in that kind Mm -hmm. of rain. I had two lots of waterproofs on, was still soaked through. Some of these kids have turned up in T-shirts. I mean, what are they, what are the parents thinking? Anyway, <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't have mattered, to be fair, because even the ones in waterproofs, it, we were all soaked. But but I needed to keep it going. I need to keep it moving and yeah, keep the energy yeah. going and all that sort of stuff. So 
the under 12s played together there was about 10 of them maybe 12 and then the under 14s played there was eight of them they were on different pitches uh playing alongside each other and then uh, we put in loads of different ideas and constraints and moved and, and played around with the different games. And then at the end, I said, right, OK, uh, we've got 20 minutes to go. The under 14s are going to take on the under 12s. And the 12s were like, yeah, 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 this is so great. And the under 12s were like, there's, like I said, there was more of them, 12 of them against eight. And I was I was giving a lift home to um, a couple of the kids afterwards. And uh, one of them said, that was so hard. The under-14s this was. This was so hard playing against those under-12s. Like, they were everywhere. They're like a swarm. Because, of course, <laughs> you know, they're un- lot, some of them are like 11, and so they haven't yet fully got the spacing idea, right? So they just go after yeah. the ball. So they're swarming yeah. the ball. I said, when I was trying to dribble, I had to go past one, then two, then three, then four, and it was just so hard. <laughs> I said, there you go. There's a real value to that. And he says, and then also they were tackling me from all sorts of different places that I would never expect them to tackle from. And again, you know, this is where they're doing novel things and they're having to try and navigate through that. So, yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? It really is. Awesome stuff. Um, taking, uh, I'd say the last topic I'd like to chat about real quick is, is how do coaches take free play models to practice? And the, um, the word game-like is a word that is thrown around a lot in sports. I'm not sure if yeah. it's talked about in soccer as much as it is like in basketball and lacrosse. I think game-like is a word that gets, that is, is confused. People are confused about it because what they think it is, is simulating game situations um, when really um, a lot of times, a lot of times coaches will do that in order to like accomplish something and they'll simulate the situation. We're going to work yeah. on it. They structure it. They work on it. They get better at it and it makes them feel good about it. It's what we were talking about earlier with the, with the wilderness. It's like, you know, the, the Baroque garden, you can really feel good about what you accomplished in the, in the wilderness part. It, 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 what did you can be like, well, what did we accomplish? Like, I really wanted to learn how to do this particular defense and, and it never happened. Um, but <clears throat> game like to me has this combination of context and which is, which is your number of, you know, teammates and opponents. Um, obviously in some ways, the more context, the better, but you got to find this balance between ultimate context and reps. So you yeah. kind of find that middle ground, but the other part of it that is that is maybe the most important part of game like is that it's not in the coach's control. Because if it's in the coach's control, it is no longer game like. Because the essence of a game is it is a wilderness. It is not under the control of a coach. I mean, a coach can use their voice to a certain degree uh, on one half of the field near the bench. But when the ball's at the other end, you can't communicate very well and you can't control it. And so um, allowing when you, when you, and, and by the way, kids love competition. So if you simply make something competitive and let the constraints and the context do the teaching, you may feel like you didn't learn exactly what you had set out to learn on that day, but you did learn how to play in the wilderness. And then over time, maybe you can figure out constraints that will get you what you want while You've got this game-like situation where it's up to the kids to win or lose, to figure it out. They'll, they'll learn more from losing than they will from your instructions. And even when they get it right with your instructions, it's fool's gold anyways, because it doesn't translate. So anyways, that was the last sort of topic. And I think it's really, 
important for coaches to let go of what they feel like they must accomplish and realize that in games, if their kids can handle the wilderness, they're going to do pretty well in a game. I, I agree entirely. Um, it's a big subject, actually. Maybe we could even do maybe another podcast on it. Um, but just some, some, some thought fragments associated with that. Um, I, I think you're right, by the way, around... So there is this notion about what they call like rep, they call it representative practice design, um, which is how do you ensure that the practice is as representative of the game as it can be or representative of the formal context? And you're absolutely right as well. Playing a full kind of 11 v 11 in my world game doesn't always afford enough um, opportunities for action for some players. Right. So actually what you might need to do is to reduce numbers in order to give them more opportunities for action. Yeah. But how do you make, so, so often what we're trying to do as coaches is to, is to make it representative enough. Yep. And then the constant question is how representative is representative enough. So obviously that's a little bit mm -hmm. of a challenge, but, but likewise, you, you make a really good point, I think about, about working backwards from the game. And this is where I think this sense maker approach becomes a really quite interesting concept because it's a very different approach to coaching. So a lot of coaching is, is kind of almost like this pre-designed. So I've got a plan, I've got my practices, I've, I've pre-designed them uh, and we're going to go and do them. And then we're going to go from there. And, and that's not a bad way. I'm not saying that's wrong. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily have some practice ideas in, in order to create a space. Um, what I have a tendency to do, though, is to, is to be a bit like you. So I, in order to be a sense-making, to do a sense-making approach, you, what you're doing is you're sort of, you're actually relinquishing control. Now, there's a, I don't want people to get the idea that within, free, within a free play concept, or even within the wilderness concept, that we're just going to leave people to their own devices, because that's, that's, not, that's not kind of appropriate either. We're not just going, right, uh, there's a game over there, and I'm just going to sit back and have a chat with my friends while they're playing. Because that's not necessarily going to, it, it, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of value in that. There is. But actually. That's the true free play. Yeah. But the, but the, skill, the skill here is sometimes what we do is we make um, subtle uh, manipulations to the environment so that we can um, draw attention to particular aspects of the game and then we can be a bit more focused on that aspect so it might be more of a defensive aspect so for example if i've got a group and we're going to work on something around attacking i will give some um uh, i'll give some little challenges to the defending group or some little different ideas to the defending group to see how the attacking group react so I'd be doing it that way. So I'd make a change to the environment by giving a task to the defending group. So the task might be, for example, you're never allowed to be more, you guys never, never be more than, say, five yards apart, whatever it might be. Now the, so they're now like a little cluster, like moving around like this honeybee thing, honey pot. And then what do they, do the attack notice? Do they see that? How do they coordinate around it? What do they do to move around it? And all those sorts of things. So we can do some interesting manipulations, right? Now, it's still free play because I'm not in the space. All I'm doing is giving one task to that group. And then afterwards, we can begin to reflect on it. What do you notice about what they're doing? What do you notice yeah. about the way you guys are coordinating and how much success are you having? And we've got little opportunities to learn from that. So yeah. we yeah. can make it rich. We can make it really rich. The sixth one in the constraint is how the defense is playing. You know, you, you can pretty much make make any environment different by having the by by having the defense pressure or play soft or double team or whatever. And um, I think that that's 
huge. Um, and that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's the genius of, of coaching is when you can have that control and get kind of create an environment that you, that's going to give you the results you want, but without you making it happen with your voice. Yeah, you're playing around with some of these environmental opportunities. Yeah. So I would have, I would have put that example actually under the people and the task constraints. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And so what I would do is, um, but also I, uh, you know, I feel like a bit, sometimes like a bit like a DJ. You know, you you yeah. dial it, you're dialing stuff up and down to try and create sort of a different environment. Now, that's that's not necessarily taking it away from being free play. It certainly feels like free play to them. My manipulations are just changing the mm -hmm. dynamics of the experience that they're having, but I'm trying to stay out of it. But in order to do it skillfully, you as a coach have to be—you uh, have to be a sense maker in the sense that you have to be picking up the vibes. You have to be picking up the—you mm -hmm. have to be attuned to the dynamics that are happening there. So you need real good observation skills. You need to be listening, hearing, probing with the right questions, soliciting information from the athletes in order then to be able to then determine what their experiences are and then you can make further manipulations if you need to yeah and that's a different kind of role you're you're learning in the game with with the athletes as opposed to sort of almost being on the outside and trying to control mm -hmm. and manipulate and For it's sure. quite an interesting space to be in it is and honestly this is where the film piece comes in it's so important and not enough people do this but if you really want to, to do the best, let them learn implicitly in real time, film what you do. You as the coach, watch it so you can actually know what happened because you won't know what happened, really. You'll think you know what happened, but you don't. You'll think somebody didn't play well and you'll realize they actually did play pretty well or you thought someone played great or you're, and they didn't play that great. But, but you can then use those in, in the same inner game of tennis model where people, if they see things they can, they, that's, that's how we learn as little as, 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 as babies and toddlers, we watch what people do and we imitate to use that film. You can make a point, you know, a picture worth a thousand words, it's probably worth more. And so, you know, how do you do this practically for most people? I'll tell you how I did it. I had my iPhone and I'd bring a little stepladder out and then I just film what we were doing. And then I would share it in little eight or 10 second clips on a text thread usually, or group me or whatever. You can do it on a Facebook group, on a private Twitter page. And you simply just show these clips to the kids, I don't know, a couple of day or whatever. And you'll be blown away by how that adds up. So if you do two or three a day, that's like 20 in a week. And then over the course of eight weeks, that's 160 teaching clips of stuff that you taught them so much better that way than you did if you tried to explain it and show it and demo it and all this stuff. You can just see it clear as day. Um, and so um, that's kind of like, to me, the last step is, is and the more you watch it, then it starts becoming like my, my octopus teacher, because you like start watching these environments. And if you watch it over and over again, you can find something new in any video. Um, yeah, if you watch it yeah. I think it's great. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, I've got some friends who who uh, have a platform called Coach Logic, and it's exactly what they do: uploaded videos, and then they actually convene communities of learning amongst the players, where they almost like sort of critique themselves, critique each other, mm -hmm. talk about where they could have gone better, and this sort of stuff. So I think it's a really powerful learning model. And for that matter, I would also highly recommend buying a $7 or $10 chest harness from Amazon and attaching your iPhone to your chest when coaching. And then you'll see some things in your own practice 
and your interactions that you may have not noticed before. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, those are, a, those are a big wake up call. Did I really sound like that? And, and by the way, when you were talking about Galway earlier on, um, just a recommendation, if, I don't know if you've come across it, but it's a fabulous podcast by um, Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball, mm. um, one of my favorite authors. He did a whole series on coaching called, it's called Against the Rules, and one of them features Galway uh, himself talking about, you know, kind of his journey as a tennis coach, but then also his subsequent you know the, the applications of his in a game approach in business life parenting etc etc it's really fascinating yeah great stuff Stu. this was a total blast man i'm uh, i'm, I'm uh, glad we did it and we're gonna have to do it again sometime soon i agree i feel like we've been in a coaching jam session <laughs> <laughs> totally great to speak um, to you um so for, for people on my podcast who want to find out a bit more about your approach and philosophies and they maybe want to get hold of some of your resources, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, go to my website, uh, jm3sports.com. JM, Jamie Monroe, three, favorite number, sports.com. And there's, uh, there's a lot of good content on there. Uh, access to, I, I write a pretty in-depth blog every week with a lot of really cool information, tons of free play and how to apply these game-like situations to practices. Um, and then uh, the podcasts, you know, I, I generally do podcasts with lacrosse coaches, um, but, but I, I venture into anybody that I find interesting. And there are so many interesting people out there, guys like Tony Holler from feed the cats and Mike Boyle, a strength conditioning coach out of, Boston or Ted Sadukon, you've probably seen him on uh, yeah. the hockey dive from the KHL, um, you know, and, and Ted Creighton. And, you know, I, 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 I find you can learn so much from just about anybody. And that's what I'm always, uh, always up for. Cool. No problem. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'll, um, I'll have a listen and um, yeah, I haven't been able to blog myself as much as I'd like recently. Uh, most of the time it's been as much as I can just to get these podcasts out, but uh, I've really enjoyed speaking with you and um, yeah, like you say, let's, let's do a part oh, two. Nice.